stretch it out for, for long periods of time, or humanity can shorten its period of time, number one. So that's in terms of the deficiency itself. In terms of God utilizing it or wanting it there as a tool for growth, so man, God can look at man and say, hmm, 10,000 years have gone by and man still could use it to grow. Man still hasn't utilized it for all the growth that's been necessary. So from the standpoint of it being a temporary tool for growth, as long as we haven't fully um, used it as a tool of growth, it could still merit its existence further. So for those two arguments, that the deficiency itself has to self-destruct, or that it was originally only put there temporarily as a tool of growth, those two elements by themselves don't necessarily give a definitive date of departure. Those two things don't give definitive dates, because depending upon what humanity will now do or not do with, with the challenge of deficiency, it can go on longer or shorter. So is there any specific time that no matter what happens, the deficiency goes out of existence? This is the third element that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is now introducing with a resounding yes. And Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is saying that aside of the concept of the deficiency destroying itself, and aside of the concept of it being a tool, there is one more element, that that element is God. And God is personally involved in the process. And God does have a deadline. God does have a specific goal by which time it must happen. And if it doesn't happen in the process that God elected, which was the process of free choice, so then God will suspend parts of the free will system in order to fully accomplish the, the dismissal or the nullification of these deficiencies. So now we're being introduced to a third part. In other words, it's not only in inherently that it'll destroy itself, it's not only that by definition of its function it will eventually go out of existence, but that even if those two things would merit its existence for much longer because man is not assuming the challenge of dealing with it correctly, nevertheless there is yet God's involvement where God says that I will allow the process of free will up to a certain point and beyond that point if it is not, if it is not accomplished through the free will system it will be accomplished with a suspension of parts of the free will system. And that's the third point that Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata is introducing over here. Okay, let's see this insight. Behold, even this, this free will choice, that he is leaving up to us now, the Tamar HaDover Tali Va'aymed, and it's constantly in suspension, and we are constantly making decisions between doing good or doing the opposite of good, all depending upon what we're doing, that process itself of free will will not go on forever and ever. It will only go on for the amount of time that the... the um, the um, estimation and the calculation of the exalted um, calculations of God require it, that it is necessary and sufficient for all of the souls that he created. And 
that they should all find their correction. In what, in, in what ways? Me b'tzitkasem, those that will do it through righteous choice. Me b'tshuvasem, those that will do it through a process of correction. Or me and those that will do it the Kabbalah Yisurim, and those that will do it by having to sustain difficult things in their lives that purify their nishamas. So in other words, what is Rav Chaim Lutzat saying here? Rav Chaim Lutzat is saying is the following thing. Rav Chaim Lutzat is saying is that there is a deadline. But the deadline has to have one accomplishment, that all of the neshamas, all of the souls that were created, reach their tikkun. They reach their, their state of completeness and their mission for which they were created. Now, one second, one second, one second. Now, I usually take the questions at the end, unless they're, they're just uh, critical that I'm, I'm not coherent. Uh, the, um, this, this idea, in other words, this idea would be the following. The idea would be the following. There is a deadline, but the deadline doesn't, doesn't um, entail a, a suspension of the original goal. The original goal was that all of the neshamos should all come to the realization of God, an awareness of God, an appreciation of God, and in that accomplish their own fulfillment and their own happiness. That was the goal. So now Rav Meshachim is saying, I want you to know that there is a deadline for this. Now does that deadline mean that when the deadline comes, so those that made it made it, and those that didn't make it go down the tubes and that's the end of it? No. But Meshachim Lutzata says that the concept of a deadline means that the goal is accomplished, there is a deadline for the goal, and the deadline is in terms of the free will process. But beyond the free will process, if it's not accomplished in the free will process, there isn't a letting go of the goal. The goal remains the goal, that every neshama should reach this point. So the neshamas can reach this point by the provided free will process. If they don't use the free will process, so then they will use the process, process of Kabbalah Yisur, where God will bring upon the neshama forms of purification that are spiritually uh, demanding or spiritually painful for the neshama, but that the neshama will eventually come to the recognition of Hashem one way or the other. Obviously it would be a lot better if it would come to that recognition through its own free will process or through the process of correcting the chuvasam. If those two don't happen, there is no soul that's lost, there will be yet another process. And that process usually happens either here, it either happens here within the lifetime of a person or it can occur after the person physically terminates his existence in the continuing existence of the neshama past its partnership with the physical body. It can be in either one of two places. So what Ramesh Hamilton is saying is the following. Deficiency has a deadline by its own nature and by it being a tool. So it was only created temporarily. It also has a deadline because God creates a deadline. But that deadline doesn't mean that those that don't get to the finish mark by the deadline are out. All it means is that the deadline for the particular process of free will is over. And then God 
this will move into other processes in order to be able to get every neshama to that point of recognition. This is what Rav Meshachim Lutzata is saying. V'zehu <coughs> ha'mayid, and this is the particular time, Ashesam, Shita Alpha Shana. This is what is referred to in our Talmudic literature and also in the Kabbalistic literature as the time of 6,000 years. Kedivra Rabbi Seinozal, as our sages taught us in, in the tractate Rosh Hashanah, in the tractate Sanhedrin. Va'acher, and what will happen after the 6,000 years? Yechadesh Eilamai, God will create a new world, Li'ez B'nei Adam Kemalachim V'loi Kechamayrim. And in that new world, people will be like angels and not like donkeys. Right? That uh, one understands the, uh, the suggestion there. This new world will be a world in which they will be stripped of the coarseness of physicality and from all of the negative products that the physical body is capable of creating. This refers specifically to the negative inclination, and everything that happens from it. There's some chairs over there in the corner that you can pull out. And even in the times of Mashiach, it says that God will take out the heart of stone and make a heart of flesh. The Chazal Amru and our sages say, These will be years that people will not have desire. What does that mean? They won't have the desire of negative inclination. These are the days of Mashiach. There is no merit and there is no, there is no responsibility. And this is all very simple. Because if the world is rid of negative inclination, he doesn't deserve any great reward for doing the right things if he had no choice but to do the right thing. Now let me explain what Rav Meshachai is saying here, because Rav Meshachai again, very, very smoothly and innocently, is throwing at us a very, uh, a very uh, yesodistic, a very principal kind of concept of Yiddishkeit, and that is the following. And we touched on it, but over here, he, uh, he brings it out a lot clearer. Um, if I could ask some of you if you could share the sheets. We don't have enough sheets. Um, hard to predict from week to week, and we're really getting to the end of this pamphlet, so I didn't run off more. So if you can just share some sheets, that would be helpful. There is also a bench on the outside porch. If there's a shortage of chairs, you can bring in the, the bench. Um, let, me ex- let me try to clarify what Rav Meshachim Lutzat is saying over here. Rav Meshachim Lutzat is saying over here the following. He's saying, number one, the world is marching towards a goal. There's a deadline, there's a structure, and the world is marching in that direction. Now, how do we understand this marching in that direction? Do we understand that, that God says, listen, for the first 6,000 years, it's all in your court, right? And leave me out of it. And if 
by the end of 6,000 years, nothing happens that I want to happen, or certainly not reaching it, so then all of a sudden I will move in on the situation and I will make dramatic moves and changes. So Ramesh Chaim says this is not so. Ramesh Chaim says the following thing. When we're talking about the, the, uh, this process of deficiency slowly going out of the system and it being overtaken by wholesomeness and fulfillment and all kinds of, and positive thinking and positive connection to Hashem, this is a slow and gradual process. Right? This is a slow and gradual process. It's as slow as our choice is. It's as slow as our choice. But even, even beyond the, the slowness that it might have because of our choice, it, it also, God also works Slowly to move the world closer and closer to that state of fulfillment. And let me explain. And I'm going to explain it in the words that Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata used. Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata speaks about that after 6,000 years, what will the world be? It will be a new world. Okay? That's what he makes the reference to. It's going to be a new world. It's going to be a world in which people will be stripped of the coarseness of the physical and all of the negative results of that physical that includes the negative inclination and all of that which the negative inclination is responsible for. Now, do we know precisely what that world looks like after the year 6000? Do we know what it looks like? Will we still have eyeballs? Will we still have arms? Will we still have flesh? We don't know exactly what that world is all about. All we know is that today we live in a world where we're a combination of physical and spiritual, and we are governed and we are controlled to a certain degree by our physical properties. They dictate, they say things. We don't necessarily have to listen, we can try to integrate, but the physical part of us is a balabas. The physical part of us is a master in our lives. Hopefully a positive master integrated with the neshama, but he dictates, he says things, I want this now and I want this, and how about this, and satisfy me this way. He's, he's a Baldava. He's, he's, a, he's a principle in our lives. He's definitely a principle in our lives. We can't say that the Nisham is a principle and the body is not. The body is also a principle. Now, we talk about a period of time where all deficiency will be gone, which means, essentially, that the concept of a physical body, demand, even demanding, or whispering into the ear of a human being something which is empty or something that is not totally integrated with his neshama will not exist. That just won't exist anymore. So the idea of, uh, of the principle called body driving us in empty directions or negative directions will not be an existing phenomena. It's not that it'll be there but we'll be able to control it. It won't be there because Again, going back to the concept that Lozano spoke about, anything that is inherently deficient will have to go out of existence. So the property that the physical has to drive me in that way cannot exist then anymore. So it means that the whole physical takes on a different form. What kind of a form? Lozano throws up his arms at a different point in the book 
and says, I don't know what it's all about. I don't know how to describe it because it has, it has no association with this world. But we will have some kind of a physical container to ourselves, but it will not govern us the way it governs us now because nothing could govern us in a direction towards deficiency at the time when we say deficiency has to go out by deadline or by the definition of what deficiency is. So what are we talking about? We're talking about a world that's different. Not a world that's different because of our choices, but a world that's different by its very nature because now it's a world of wholesomeness and completeness so it won't have the entity of a body that drives towards, that drives towards negativity. Right? So we're talking about a different kind of a world. So Rav Meshachayim Lassafet says the, the, I, the whole notion of a different kind of a world is something which is a gradual process of transformation. It is not a boom. All of a sudden, at the end of 6,000 years, all of a sudden God says, okay, you had enough chances, whatever you did, you did whatever you didn't do, it's too late, and we, we uh, explode a bomb, the world's gone, and now God makes a new world. The Meshachayim Lutzatah says it is a gradual process. And therefore, Rav Meshachayim Lutzatah begins to introduce, and Rav Meshachayim Lutzatah says that the times of Mashiach are not after 6,000 years, but the times of Mashiach as Rav Moshchem has a whole chapter about it coming up very shortly, the times of Mashiach precede the deadline of 6,000 years. That comes before. And in the times of Mashiach, we begin realizing the phenomena of the waning of the physical properties and the, and the deficiencies and the superiority and the supremacy that the Neshama will be gaining. Right? How is that expressed? So he explains. It says in the verses that God will take out the heart of stone and will replace it with a heart of flesh. Or it talks about the times of Mashiach being times where we are not driven by negative inclination. What is that saying to us? What that is, and that's all before the deadline of 6,000 years. That's the times of Mashiach. So what is Rav Moshechai Mosata trying to express here? Rav Moshechai Mosata is saying that being that we are headed in the in the direction of, quote-unquote, a new world, right? So the concept of a new world doesn't happen all of a sudden. That today we have the world of 1987 with all of its physicality, and all of a sudden God just zonks out the whole world and starts over with a world that's absent of it. There is a slow waning away from the physicality, and as there is a slow waning away from the physicality that draws us, that part of it that draws us towards negativity, there is the, that space is overtaken with neshama. The neshama takes that over. So there's a pullback from the physicality aspect, and there is a, a growth of the neshama aspect. And that's a slow process. Now, that's in the times of Mashiach. And those times of Mashiach begin this, this change, this internal change within man. Does the world yet change yet? No. Man is beginning to change. And when the change is significant and large enough and strong enough within man, then God says now that man is different, his world and the circumstances that he's surrounded by also have to elevate themselves to suit his condition. In other words, for, for the free will processes we have it today, we have the world. 
and we got all the free will process that we want out there. But when free will process becomes less of a point, because God is now moving into the direction of reaching the deadline and reaching the goal, so as man changes and his choices or the availability of his choices becomes smaller and smaller because his physicality is waning away, becomes a given point in time where God says that man has changed so much that he's not in concert with the world around him anymore. There's no point for all of the deficiency in the world around him because he's beyond that already. It is at that point, which is at the deadline of the 6,000 years, that God says now that man has gradually changed in the times of Mashiach, his world has to be compatible also and also has to change for him. So the same way that he's changing and he's becoming more spiritual and less physical, the world around him also has to. That's the particular deadline of 6,000 years. Now, Lazaro, Ramesh Hamasata, says later on in the Sefer, and this is phenomenal because he breaks it down. He gives you a timetable. He gives you an actual calendar based in the Zohar where he says that there's a, a thousand-year period of time. 6,000 years is this world. Then there is a thousand-year period of time that the world is in transformation. Right? The world is in transformation. The Zohar refers to this period of time as a period of time that the Neshamas fleet around between heaven and earth like angels. But they have no place, not in heaven or not, in, not on earth, because the world is in a process of transformation. To suit the elevated state of man, the changed state of man. Now, there are a lot of implications which I'm not going to go into to this, but there are two principal ones which I want to at least mention. The first one is, the Rav Chaim Lassat has said that the change that we're talking about of the deficiency becoming absent from the world is a gradual one. It's a gradual one. It doesn't just happen at the end of six, seven years. God says, I quit and get rid of the deficiency, but it is a gradual process. The reason why it's a gradual process is because God wanted that man should adapt to change gradually and develop this change gradually and that the world should develop this change gradually. That's number one. Number two, there is yet another implication which I would like to draw more conclusions from at this point because it's more practical for us and that is the concept that the world, God always protects the world and man that they should be in concert with each other. So that when man's condition changes significantly, the world condition that is made for him also changes in accordance to his change. In other words, the notion that man goes up and down on his ladder of growth, but the world around him never changes for him, is not true. As man changes and as man grows, the world around him also changes for him. Now, in the times of Mashiach, the changes are dramatic ones within man, and therefore they are dramatic changes within the world. And it even requires a whole transformation of the world at the end of 6,000 years. But the notion that as man changes, his world changes for him as well, this is a concept that is true even without Mashiach's time. This is something that is true for us as well. What's this idea? Let me give you a, a couple of, uh, let me give you a couple of um, indications of this. When, before first man sinned, where did first man live? In Gan Eden. 
after man sinned, the, the Talmud, our Talmudic literature tells us that he plummeted spiritually, awfully. He plummeted terribly. And what does the Chumash tell us? That he was chased out of Gan Eden. Now, why was he chased out of Gan Eden? So most of us look at this like God was angry at him and God gave him a kick in the pants. Ramashchan right. Lassata explains that the altering, that he had to change his place of residence, wasn't because God was angry and I'm going to get even with you and I'm giving you a kick in the pants and get out of this paradise. What Ramashchan Lassata says that that paradise wasn't the relevant place for Adam anymore. Adam needed for his growth at the particular level that he had fallen, he'd been, he needed a different kind of an environment. His challenge was different because of his fall and he needed a different kind of an environment. When he was on the higher level, so the Gan Eden environment was the environment that would, would challenge him in the ways that he was challenged on his higher level. But once Adam Arishan plummeted and he fell the levels that he did, he needed a new environment to be in concert with his new challenge. Because since he fell, his challenges are different ones now than they were before. He's dealing with a different level of challenge. And therefore the world around him changes. So when it says by Yigarish et Adam that God chased man out of Ganadin, it wasn't tit for tat and I'm getting even with you, you really belong here, but I'm going to bounce you out because I'm angry at you. You now, on your level, don't belong here anymore. This is not what is most beneficial for you for where you're coming from right now. You need something else right now. Let me give you another couple of examples. Again, using Adam Arishan, and then we'll use ourselves. That's when it gets dangerous. Let's uh, let's deal with Adam Arishan. Before Adam Arishan sinned, he didn't have to work. He didn't have to work. The Gemara says... They were angels that sent him broiled meat and, and delicious wine, which means essentially that it was all provided naturally with the nature, and he didn't have to go through the entire work process. Aren't we envious of him? Right? Now, after Adam Arishan sinned, there was no more deliveries of broiled meat and wine. He had to go out, and he had to, he had to till the soil, and he had to wait till it grew, and then he had to thresh it, and he had to separate the chaff from the, from the good stuff, and then he had to knead it into a dough and bake it into a bread. A half a million processes. So again, when we look at it like this, very simply, very superficially, we say, God's getting even with man. You didn't listen to me? Now I'm going to make you work for a living. Before you were on vacation, now you're going to have to work for a living. Right? But that's not the case. The case is, again, before Adam Arishan fell the levels that he fell, he needn't be challenged with all of the challenges of making a livelihood. He was on a spiritual level that didn't require the challenge of making a livelihood and all of the spiritual challenges that come with it. He didn't need it. If he didn't need it, it wasn't part of his condition. It wasn't part of his circumstances. But the minute that Adam Arishan fell, the minute that Adam Arishan fell, God said that for the level that he's on after his spiritual fall, it will be very beneficial for him to be humbled into the million-point process. It will be very beneficial for him to occupy his time with the dependency upon food, and from it he will learn many, many different connections and spiritual lessons that will draw him back to the God that he left. 
So again, there is an altering, there is a change. As man changes, the world or the circumstances of his world also change to match what is best for him. Right. There's another, that, that's another form of a change. Let me give you one more example, which is abstract, and then we'll deal with some practical examples. All right, with some practical ones. One more. Uh, Nachmanides, in the Parsha of Nayach, <coughs> talks about the, the tremendous difference in the longevity of life before the flood as to after the flood. Nachmanides deals with this issue. Where did the change come? Before the flood, people lived 700, 800, 900 years, and then all of a sudden after the flood, it's 120 years. So Nachmanides says, very interestingly, Nachmanides says, and this, by the way, is used by Orthodox scientists in many of the discussions of dating, the Nachmanides says that the flood was not just um, a New York thunder shower for 40 days, but it was a very violent weather condition of tremendous heat and cold all mixed together with tremendous pressure put upon the core of the earth and the atmosphere and this Nachmanides said depleted the minerals of the earth contaminated the atmosphere which naturally led to a dramatic cut in the longevity of life this is what Nachmanides said Orthodox scientists cite a lot of this, this particular study of Nachmanides in terms of understanding that which is dated for thousands and maybe millions of years and doesn't take into account acute weather conditions that can create uh, a, a, much, uh, a much older uh, picture of what the world is than it really is. This is one of the things that is cited. There are many arguments that are cited, but this is one of them. Now, but Nachmanides doesn't stop there. Nachmanides is giving a natural ex explanation for the difference in the longevity of life. But we know as Jews that such a dramatic change is natural as we can explain it. There has to be a spiritual reason why God was willing to alter and was in fact responsible for altering the nature of the world. God could have created a new world similar to his old world. He could have injected into the world all of the minerals that the original world had and the new, a new atmosphere, but God went along and supported a flood that would diminish the productivity and the health of the earth and of the atmosphere and therefore change the longevity of life as well. So the question is, what is the spiritual connection for this? What's the spiritual connection? <clears throat> so the Malvin explains it very, very beautifully. And the Malbim says that when, Adam, when the first ten generations of the world were on a higher spiritual level, so God could have blessed them with tremendous physical abundance. Why? Because they were spiritually equipped to be able to make a healthy choice of how to use it. So therefore, because they had so much spiritual potential, or they were in contact with so much spiritual potential, the, the abundance of the physical world and the longevity of a life didn't make the challenge to do right or wrong an impossible challenge. They were equal. They were matched. There is tremendous physical abundance, and I can run away with this and become a greedy pig, 
But on the other hand, I have enough spiritual potential within myself to be able to integrate all of this blessing and ascend to tremendously high levels. So there was a balance there. And being that there was a balance, man lived in that condition. When the generation of the flood came, what God decided more than just destroying the world at that point was that humanity had plummeted spiritually that it could not tackle a world with so much physical abundance anymore. It would be a die situation without any chance to do. It wasn't a do or die situation anymore, but they had, they had been exposed and they had lived such a, a lower spiritual life to what they could have lived for so many generations that God said, if I'm going to make the, a new world identical in its abundance and in its potency to the old world, it's going to be met by a person that has already plummeted spiritually and can't tackle so much physical abundance without being lured away totally. So therefore, God said to keep the whole thing in concert, to keep the whole mechanism running in balance, God said that for the lowest spirituality, there also has to be a, a lower abundance as well. The nature of the world has to change as well because man can't tackle a higher level. Now, there's a lot to talk about in terms of that concept. I'm just bringing that concept because of the comparison that it is, that there is always a commitment on God's part to guarantee that the circumstances in the world around me match my particular station, my particular point in life, and what I need, uh, what I need for the best at this particular point in time. These are the abstract examples. Now let's get into some of the more real examples. Uh, let's talk about ourselves. This concept is not only a concept that exists in dramatic moments of history, in terms of the flood or the times of Mashiach, but the truth of the matter is that this is something that exists in many forms in our own lives as well. This is also true in our own lives. <clears throat> now, we all have questions, and maybe even some gripes, or some discontent with having been born, or placed, or pushed, or influenced into one set of circumstances in life that give me a particular set of challenges. Right. Some people are born into more positive ones, some are born into more negative ones and they don't know why they were and why is it fear that one is born in one and one is born in the other. And I'm not going to deal with the whole fearness issue right now. I'm not going to deal with it. But be it as it may, that we're, wherever we start, but as we proceed through life, if one has a keen eye, one realizes that my circumstances around me change as I change. There is a certain amount of change that occurs. Now, really, this is a very elementary concept. It boils down to what our sages say. Our sages say, The way that a person is really determined to go, God lets him go. Now, what does that statement mean? That if I'm really bent, on one particular path in life, God will make that path available to me. If I'm bent on a different kind of a path in life, God will make that one available to me. So 
there is there is a certain relationship between where I am and where I'm going or where I'm striving to be and the circumstance that is created for me. And this shows itself in many different ways. It shows itself, let me give you a few examples. Uh, let's say a person makes a decision, let's he makes a decision that he absolutely wants to uh, develop the attribute of loving kindness of Chesed. He absolutely wants to develop that Mida. He feels that maybe he's not doing enough, maybe he's not developing it enough, he wants to do more, and he's determined to actually look for it. Not that he's going to wait for it to knock at his door, but he's going to look for it. So the rule of thumb is that if you look for it, it will find you a lot easier than if you're just waiting for it to happen. And the reason for this is not just because if you look for something, you'll find it. It's because God, realizing that you're striving to that level, will give you the circumstance, will provide for you a circumstance in order to be able to accomplish that. The example of that is Avram. Avram is on the third, third day after his circumcision, an old man, a sick man, weak from his circumcision. So God decides that he's going to make the day something like it was today in order that people shouldn't be walking in the streets, so that he wouldn't be bothered with guests. But Avram wants guests. So Avram is standing outside in the heat, looking in both directions for guests. So God says, I might as well show him guests. He's suffering more this way than the other way. So God provides for him guests. Now that's the situation with Avram, and I know you can dismiss it. It's not true. It's a tzaddik, and who says it's true in all cases? But the truth of the matter is that I, I've seen it many, many times that when we look for chesed, Hashem provides it for us. When we look for circumstances of doing chesed, then Hashem provides it for us. In other words, if we want to, to be put into the position of giving and providing, and we sincerely want it, it's not as if, you know, if it'll come by, I'll do it, Hashem, but if it won't come by, I'll be just as happy. Then it doesn't happen so easily. But if I'm really committed to, to making it happen, it's the Bedarach Shadon Reitzelelech, the way that a person wants to go, Melichinai, say Hashem gives them the opportunity to walk that way. This is one example. This is one example. How God alters the circumstances or changes them or modifies them to match the condition of the, of the person. Now, we have this to be true, and many of you most probably could testify to this as well, that at a certain stage in my life, at a certain stage in my life, I had certain kinds of friends. I had certain kinds of things happen to me. I had certain kinds of things going on in my life. And then as I changed and I became different, all of a sudden I developed different friends or I become knowledgeable of opportunities that were always under my nose but I never knew about them and all of a sudden now I know about them or I happen to now meet the person that will help me with a given problem that I have that I wish I met the person ten years ago we have these circumstances in our lives where certain things come into our lives in terms of occurrences people friends and different things that they come in at a particular point and we really don't know why they came at that moment in time and that they had never come before or afterwards and the reason for this 
is again the same reason that God brings into a person's life as hard as it might be to always believe it or to be able to analyze it and understand it God always provides the arum the arena around the person to match the need of the person now this is not this is not a peculiar concept in, in Jewish philosophy it's not really a peculiar concept because Rav Dessler says Rav Dessler says that there isn't a thing that happens in a person's life that isn't geared towards the person's development to eventually get to Olam Haba to eventually get to Olam Haba to the world to come nothing that happens in a person's life isn't in some way a, contra- a potential contribution obviously man can shove it away man can dismiss it man can deny it but there isn't a single thing that happens in a person's life that doesn't um, that doesn't that doesn't um, that isn't matched by that kind of a condition a move comes into place you meet a person you come upon a work that you never saw an opportunity arises that never came up before all of these kinds of things and essentially what these things are is this 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 constant balance now why is this not a peculiar concept so I mentioned because Rizdesla says that really everything that happens to a person is in concert with his development if this is true so then the circumstances that create these these different challenges is all part of that I'm not saying, in other words, essentially what I'm saying is not any different than Rav Desla. If Rav Desla says that what, everything that happens to a person is in relationship to his growth towards Olam Haba, so it's not only in things that happen, but it's in the opportunities and the circumstances and the place that the person lives and who he interacts with. These are all parts of that condition that create the circumstances for his growth. This is, where does Rav Desla get it from? Where Rav Desla gets it from is from the underlying concept of God's involvement with man. His commitment to man and his constant involvement with man. A person has to live with the concept and it's, it's a very encouraging concept. It has a lot of obligation with it and responsibility, but it is also a tremendously encouraging concept. God is with you every step of the way. Now that doesn't mean when I say with you means that it's easy. But God is with you means that he's cognizant of where you are and what you need at every moment in time. The need might be very dramatic. It might be a crisis. It might be a tragedy. It might be something very happy. It can be a whole host of things. But this whole concept of everything that happens in a person's life and every circumstance that happens is really based in God's involvement with man, which is based in God's commitment with man. Now, the thing that is, is, is mind-boggling is that there's so much change in man that there has to be so much change in the environment around him. You know, there has to be so much change. Right? Obviously, this is a job that is for no human being. This is only a job that's a job for God. To, to constantly keep things in concert with what man needs, this is a job that's a job for God. It's not a job for... Uh, this is not a job that any man can always 
keep control of every person's circumstances and keep this going. Now, this is not to the exclusion, okay, everything that I said up to this point is not to the exclusion that sometimes God stands back and says that man has to create his arena and has to create the circumstances of his change. In other words, let's say a person comes to a certain point in his development, right? And he now recognizes, I'll just use an example because it came up in some of the shiurim before, and I don't want that this should be confused. Everything that I said up to this point can almost sound like if I make my changes, God is going to stay in step with me, right? So I'll do what I have to do, and then God is going to stay in step with me. And he better change the circumstances as I'm changing, right? There is one tricky point here. And the tricky point here, the trapping in what I said is that sometimes not only am I responsible for the internal change, but part of my responsibility will be to make the circumstances around me different. That can also be part of my, my challenge. Do you follow what I'm saying? Let me give an example. Let's say a person uh, grows up uh, with a totally secular background, right? To grow up with a totally secular background, so you make your choice of where you want to live depending upon how big the house is and how close it is to work and how close it is to the golf course or to the yacht, and, so, and, and that's it, right? And the best colleges for your kids when they grow up. And that's how you'll make your decision and you'll invest in your home and you'll invest and you can get land up in the boondocks. Right? No problem. Right? They have boondocks on the East Coast too or that's a West Coast term. I must hope this is an East Coast term. Okay. So now now it could very well be that as a person grows and a person makes changes, the person knows that he needs different things. He needs a good environment. He needs different friends. He needs a shul. He needs different circumstances. So a person can say to themselves, listen, I'm changing internally. So now I expect some kind of a magic carpet to take me to a new community. Right? And this is the world of fantasy land. Right? That doesn't happen like that. In other words, sometimes the responsibility to change the environment around us is our, is our responsibility to change it. And very often, if we don't take up the responsibility to change it, right, we haven't made a sufficient statement yet that we are meritorious or that we really warrant the change. Right? So we have to also decide, hoping for the changes, we also have to analyze how many of them am I responsible to try to create for myself and go ahead and do that as well. So the idea of God staying in step with my changes doesn't the fact that sometimes part of my step is to change the circumstances well. Now, this is an important attitude because there are certain dramatic changes that we try to make in life that no matter how hard we try, we can't make them. Let's say we're, t we're single and we're trying to get married. And we're trying to find the right person. Right? So I'm trying to make a, a change. It's a change that I want. It's a change in a, a positive direction. I think I'm doing everything that's right to get myself ready for a partner 
And no matter how hard I try, I just can't seem to find the person. Right. Now, there can be a lot of reasons why we can't find the person. Sometimes we have expectations that are not real. There can be a whole host of reasons. Sometimes I can chicken out in the last minute and I'm really not looking for a person. There, there can be a, a whole host of reasons that are possible. But sometimes we are authentically looking to make a change, a qualitative change, a change up something which will, will make me more, more complete, more full, more productive, more everything that I can be. And no matter how hard I try, it doesn't happen. So now where does this whole philosophy of God being in concert with me, where does, this, where does it come in? This seems to be a negation to this whole concept. So the truth of the matter is that it's not a negation to the concept. Because it's very hard for us to know when is the right time for a change, number one. When is the right time for the change? I decide I'm 21 years old. Statistics say that most people get married at age 21. I'm just making that up, by the way. Uh, and therefore, based upon statistics, I make my decision this is the right time, and God better pay attention to the statistics. Right. Now, it could very well be statistics, I hint statistics I hear, for me, it's not the right moment. Now, how am I to know if it's the right moment or not? I have no way of knowing. I have to assume that if I am basically healthy and emotionally and psychologically there and capable of becoming um, a husband or a wife, mother or father, that I have to make my best effort to do that. Right? But in the event that I make my best effort and it still doesn't happen, I don't necessarily, I can't say with a conclusiveness that being that I decided that it was the time for the change, that God decided that it was time for the change, and if it doesn't happen, that disproves the concept of God staying in concert with me. In other words, I might decide that it's time for a change, but God might feel that it's not yet time, for whatever reason. Maybe God wants you to have a difficult time so that you are more picky about who you look for. Maybe God wants you to appreciate the person that you'll eventually find. Maybe God wants you to learn from some of the dates that don't work out certain things so that you'll learn better how to look at the person that you want, that you truly want. It'll be, it becomes a learning process of knowing what you really are and what you really want. There can be a whole host of reasons. So when we're met up with the, the situation where we're determined to make a change and God's not cooperating, this is not in contradiction to the concept of God staying in step with me. God stays in step with me, but we have to qualify that statement. God stays in step with me, provided that that is the best step for me at that moment in time. Right? I might make the determination that it's the right thing, but God might feel that it's not yet the right thing at that moment in time. So therefore, on the one hand, because we never know, we always have to do our best and try to make the changes. But on the other hand, if we fail, provisionally fail, not permanently fail, but provisionally fail to make the change, this is a very heartwarming concept. Because what it is saying is that even though I have made my best effort, 
it is God that has decided that it's still not the right moment. So I, I, I do my best, and beyond that, I can't be held at fault. You know, people get depressed, I'm nothing, I don't count, nobody likes me, nobody loves me, I don't have anything to offer, and then there's the depression and this and that, and all of the other things that come into play. But if a person lives with the concept that God is in step with man, let's qualify the statement and say that God is in step with man, provided that that step is the next right step for man. Just as long as you say it in that way, that God is in step with man's changes and is in step in a, with what is the most positive next thing for man, so then what man has to do is he has to try his best because he doesn't know if it is or if it isn't. So he has to work with probabilities and predict and try to predict what would be the normal thing to do. And beyond that, if the person does fail, he can say with an assuredness, he can say with an assuredness that God doesn't feel that it's the right thing yet. God wants me to still learn something. God still wants me to analyze something. God wants me to still try in other ways or, or whatever. But this, is, this, it, it, this shows up in a lot of places. It doesn't only show up in, in looking for a mate. There is a concept of al-tithchik et which means in English, don't push the hour. It'll come in its right time. Which essentially means that man has determination, man has resoluteness to himself to get something done, but if he sees that there is an authentic wall being thrown up that he is not in control of, man has the right to back off and say, obviously Hashem doesn't feel that this was the right one or the right time, something of that nature. Don't push the hour. It'll happen in its right time. The concept of Bitachon doesn't only say that God does that which is good for me, but that it, also, it says that God does what is good for me in the right time for it. I can't make it happen a moment earlier than it was meant to be or a moment later than it was meant to be. That's all part of the Bitachon process. Now, obviously, this is a lot easier to talk about than to live. Right? Because when we're out there and we want something and we need something and it doesn't happen when we want it to happen, number one, it's a severe blow to our sense of control. Number two, it also hurts if we feel that it's a very deep need that's not being fulfilled. Right? So there, there definitely is a lot of emotion involved and we tend to then spin a circle of, 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 uh, of feeling bad for ourselves around ourselves and leave me alone with the philosophy and the betachan and the trust and God being in step wasn't it through I know this is what I need and this is what I'm not getting and I have a right to be I have a right to the depression that I've worked for and leave me alone alright and so on and so forth but this but this is this idea that God is in concert with man is an extremely important tool and uh, though it does it does demand a certain amount of humility to say that as much as I try, but God is in control, not I that is in control. It needs that humility. But in the long run, life has so many twists and so many quote-unquote disappointments to it and so many things that after everything is said and done we're not in control of, 
it happens to be an extremely healthful, healthy and pragmatic tool to realize this idea that God is in concert because he has a commitment and involvement with me but it's to his understanding of what the next step is not to what my understanding of the next step is but I know that I'm at least in good hands and I shouldn't despair in the interim time right? that's the idea that uh, that uh, Ramesh Chaim is saying. Now, in terms of spiritual growth, this is something which is, is true. A person that's seeking purity and really looking for purity, God will assist him in getting there. That's what the concept is in, in, in spiritual growth as well. God will give him the ability to reach it. Okay? There is assistance all part of the concept of God being in concert God being in concert with man now that doesn't mean that I only have to want it okay there's a big here again there's a trap okay a person comes to me and this happened just two days ago in Los Angeles um, a person comes to me a very involved case a Giyaris uh, a convert to Judaism, um, a woman with uh, two children, eight years old, one, 16 years old. And before her conversion, she was very abused in every possible way that a person can be abused. She was abused emotionally, psychologically, physically, in every way. And while she was going through a conversion process, she was quote-unquote supposedly involved with somebody that was a lot better and the end of the whole thing was that she again became abused in every way okay she became abused in every way again and I there's a, there are a lot of particulars here which are hard to go into but essentially she came she came to me was this two days ago on Tuesday and she literally she cried out her eyes and essentially what she was saying was what did I do so bad in my life that all of this negativity pursues me even though I'm trying to run away from it I want to be pure I want to be wholesome I want to, to be able to give my children a sense of happiness with family which I can so on and so forth and she was crying her eyes out literally and we got to talking, and she's an artist, and she's on the beachfront. And if you're familiar with the beachfront in Venice and Santa Monica in California, you know that it, it's, uh, it's the place of, uh, of, of sub-existence, and that's putting it mildly, uh, drug addicts, and every, every possible every production of the negative inclination can be found there she's an artist it's beachfront um, there are people there that appreciate her abstract art or whatever else and there is where she's growing up with her children so essentially what I told her was that she doesn't have a fighting chance of ever getting out of that trap unless she makes a change in her environment. But Rabbi, it's my parnosa. It's my livelihood. 
I invested, I put the bricks down, I put the foundation down. The city is willing to sell me the piece of property that I've been on for the last 15 years. How can I do it? And essentially it was at that point that I told her that all of the sincerity and all of the crying and all of the wanting is not enough in Hashem's eyes for the rule that that the one that wants to purify himself, Hashem will help him. The one that wants to has to communicate it or has to try to communicate it more than just on an authentic emotional level. In other words, a person has to look for advice and then if there is a certain measure of sacrifice that is necessary, that goes into the habolataher. That goes into the person that is coming to purify himself. The fact that my heart is there and I'm ready to cry out my heart is very, very important and very, very significant. But you have to be able to give something with it. You have to be able to support it. You have to be able to stand behind it. It doesn't necessarily mean the, the, the most, the greatest sacrifice in the world, but you have to be able to begin at least an iota of giving up something in the direction of Tyra, in the direction of the purity. And then when that happens, Hashem usually meets the person and, and brings to the person more than the person brought in the direction of Hashem. But something has to be brought. And the something that has to be brought, I have to make it very clear, is not only an emotion. It has to be concretized. It has to be brought into something. Right? In this particular case, it meant even if her business would be there, that she would at least attempt finding an apartment in a wholesome environment. Right? That was the particular thing that I gave her advice to do. Right? There were various other things as well in terms of uh, what she should be learning uh, in those funny places people get involved in Kabbalah. Uh, it really is consistent. It really blends with everything else. So, and essentially what I was trying to tell her was that she has to nurture herself with authentic foundations instead of all kinds of quasi-foundations and three-quarters of it where, where it's coming from is a lot of nonsense. So those were two pieces of advice that she had to pull herself away from, quote-unquote, the attraction of pseudo-Kabbalah, and that she had to also make some kind of concrete statement that I want that purity and I'm willing to make a move for the purity. Right? And that's a very, very delicate point. That is a very delicate point, because as much as a person wants, until the want is put on the line, where I can point to something and I can say that because I want, I have made, I've made a difference, I've done something, right? one has to, one has to um, not necessarily be suspect of purposefully disilluding oneself, but that the change is not really a complete change yet. Now, the, I'm not saying that the person is disilluding is, is purposefully uh, wants to believe that she really wants to change but she really doesn't want to change. I'm not saying that. She really wants to change and she really believes that she wants to change. But the change hasn't reached total maturity until the person is ready to do something for it. Even if it's a small thing but something 
which is a relinquishing, a letting go of something because I want that change. And when one makes that measure of a contribution, then the Messiah I say, then you one what comes in place of that is Hashem's assistance to the person, the concert of Hashem towards the person. I would imagine that what I set up to this point has some questions. Okay. How could, how was I so right? And it's Michael again. What? No, nothing. Just, uh, of course, that's in the record. I'll pick like a Tasha. How do you reconcile that with a walker that, say, went up to the post of life? A walker says, has a certain time to stay on, on something. How do you, like, the example of Shmonot and the Chuppah, how do you reconcile those two? Okay. Ben Shmonot and the I'm just using that as an example. I understand. Okay, what Halacha says is what it is my responsibility to attempt. Halacha is not saying what's going to happen. Halacha is the responsibility of what I have to attempt doing. Right? That's when I, in other words, I have to know what are my responsibilities, if I don't know if it's the right hour, so maybe I should sit back until I get a heavenly message that it's the right hour. So what Halacha says is, now is my time to start. Now, to start trying. Now, the question that comes up is, if I start trying when I'm 18 years old, just as an example, I'm not suggesting that, but if I start when I'm 18 and I'm 23 years old and it still hasn't happened, so I can look back at the last five years and say, that obviously I was trying to push the hour and I wasted the last five years, right? That is incorrect. That is wrong. Because if Halakha says, if Halakha requires that I should make the attempt when I'm 18, that means that there is some purpose if I, if I am successful or not in the ultimate goal, there is a purpose in my trying from that moment in time. And there was what to be gained from trying from that moment in time. It might not be obvious, it might not be terribly complementary to my personality that I've tried for so long and it hasn't happened, but what Halakha is saying is it is from this time that you have to make the attempt, and even if you fail, you have a right to assume that there was something accomplished, because Halakha said that you should do it, and it wasn't Hashem's will that it should reach its fruition yet. Something was accomplished by it. I don't necessarily know what it was, but something was accomplished by it. If the halakha wouldn't say it, and I would just be guessing at it, so then I could look back and I could say to myself, well, maybe I started at the wrong time, and there was nothing to be gained from starting at the wrong time. But if halakha says that now I, uh, this is the right thing to do, irrespective if I get what I determined to be the goal or not, I do have the assuredness that there's a purposefulness in the attempt. There's a purpose to it. I might not know what it is. I might not agree with it. I might not want to look at it. I might not be dealing with what its purpose is, but there is some purpose to it. See, what we're confusing here is attempt and goal, or process and goal, as we've discussed it many times before. Halacha discusses process. Halacha does not guarantee goal. It is not a process, halacha. Halacha tells me what to do. If what I do will be successful or not successful is a different issue. Yeah. 
This is not true. Rav Moshe, Rav Moshe Feinstein said, I'll give you an example. Rav Moshe, Rav Moshe Feinstein talks about the fact that a person has an obligation to the mitzvah Terry of Arifia, to procreate. Okay? He has a mitzvah to procreate. Now, Rav Moshe says, how can a person have this mitzvah, right? There's that which he can do, but there's no guarantee beyond that point. There are a lot of different elements that have to come into play to make it happen, right? So how can a person be obligated to procreate if there are so many circumstances that are not in his hands? So Rav Moshe says very clearly, the mitzvah is not to procreate, the mitzvah is to do your best to procreate. So Rav Moshe says in the tshuva. Right? I'm just use, giving this to you as an example. And this is really true in all mitzvahs. I have to make my best attempt at doing it. It is not the definition. Obviously, we're looking for gold. But the halacha doesn't guarantee the goal. The halacha says this is the process that you have to be involved in. If it's not, if it doesn't reach what we recognize as being the goal, we have a right to assume that there was a purpose to it, regardless, because halacha dictated that this is the process that I should be going through. So was I trying to miss or not? Let's say if I'm letting no, I wasn't the kind of the mitzvah. No, I wasn't the kind of the mitzvah, but there was a purpose to the process. Radical, huh? huh? But it, but I, I'm just showing you from Rav Meisha as one example of this. But this is true. The Chayyim Avodas talks about it at great length. In the Shara Bitachan. Yes. I mean, if, if you think about it, I can't, I can't reiterate it strongly enough. If we can try to keep this in front of ourselves when we make the attempts at the things that we want so much, it's a much, much healthier way of approaching life. It's much healthier. Because then we can, we can, we can, uh, we can rest assured just as long as we know that we did what we have to do. I know there's the idea that if it doesn't happen, I'm a failure, is not a Jewish concept. That's a secular concept. The Jewish concept is, I'll try my best. That's the Jewish concept. The concept that if I don't reach the goal, I'm a failure, in spite of the fact that I tried the best, that's not true. That's, that's a major. That's a that's a major statement, right? Yeah. excellent question and uh, like all excellent questions somebody else asked it before you I, I don't mean that in a bad way but all good questions were asked right? okay I'll tell you who asked the question and we'll go through a couple of the answers Rukhayim Belajina in the Nefesh asked this question 
and he asks the question in the following way. He asks, let's say you go into a doctor and the doctor diagnoses that you have such and such a condition and you have to go through such and such a therapy in order to be cured. It's a painful therapy. So, and this is the only way that you're going to be cured. So you run into the waiting room, you open your pocketbook, you get your Tehillim, you go back into the doctor's office and you pray to the doctor to have Rachmanis on you and not to administer the particular therapy. So Rechaim Velazhenis says, what would you say about such a person? Rechaim Velazhenis says the person is a little bit off the wall. Because if this is the therapy that will help, where does prayer come into the picture altogether to ask to alter the therapy? In other words, if we believe that Hashem is the is the is the is the most masterful, compassionate being that has our best interest in mind, and he made a determination that the best thing for me now is to be sick. So who am I to constantly pray that the person should become well? Alright, let's personalize it. Who am I to pray that I should become well? Alright, this is Rukhain Velajan's question. It's a it's a very bold question, but it's a very practical question. Because it's almost like not believing that the condition is for my best to constantly pray and to see that nothing's happening and to con- continue praying. So, Rukhain Velajan has a very spiritually advanced answer, and I'm not going to go into Rukhain Velajan's answer right now because it'll take another two hours. But I'll give you an answer with Rukhasko Levenstein, who is uh, the, one of the famous Majgichim and the Miri Yeshiva answers to this question. And he said the following. He said, we make a very big mistake about what tefillah is, what prayer is. We think that, um, that what tefillah is, is a petition for good. Be they services, goods, health, that it's a petition. It's a petition, it's a persuasion process, it's a convincing process. We want to be a little bit more eloquent about it. It's a spiritual process. But after everything is said and done, it's some kind of changing, that you're creating a change in a decision that was made. So Rukhatsko says that that is an error. This is a terrible mistake, because simply from a philosophical point of view, we don't change God's mind. We never change God's mind. Because changing God's mind would almost suggest that there was something deficient in the original decision that I was able to bring to the surface or bring to bear that created a change. And that is not an apt description. On a theological basis, it's not an apt description of Hashem. So what is changing? So Rukhastel says, but there is something that's changing. What is changing is that the person is changing through the process of prayer. In other words, Hashem made a decision that Rachel, on on Yom Dalit Tammuz, on four days in Tammuz, is on this particular level in her connection with Hashem. And for this particular level, Hashem decides that she has to be reminded not to take everything for granted. She's on a particular level, she can't take everything for granted. She's taking too much for granted, and she's not tying it back to Hashem, and she's not as connected as she can be to Hashem. So therefore, I am going to remind her, and she is going to get a backache, and the simplest walking movements will not will be difficult for her. All right. Now, what has Hashem 
what is Hashem, why has Hashem brought the condition? Because there's been a definition of Rachel that requires this particular therapy. But if Rachel can either use the particular circumstance to change herself, or that through tefillah she closes the gap of what was deficient, so we're not changing Hashem, but Rachel is changing. So the Rachel that yesterday it was decided that she needs a backache, today she doesn't need the backache anymore because she's a different Rachel today. She's grown through the process of tefillah. She's grown out of the necessity of, of yesterday's decision. Where do we have an idea? Where do we have this concept very eloquently? Our Chazal say it. Our Chazal say that our Imois, that that Sarah was unable to have children, Rivka was able to, unable to have children, Rachel was unable to have children. Well, the Gemara says if anybody deserved to bring children into the world, it was those righteous women, those Tzitkaniyot. So, Lama Asa Akarish Barachun Why did Hashem make them Akarish? So the Gemara answers, and the Gemara says, because Hakadosh Baruch Hu misavel l'tfilasim shol tzaddikim, because Hashem has a des- tremendous desire for the prayers of tzaddikim. So, and He knows that this is a way that they would really pray with an intensity, and He loves those kinds of prayers. So therefore, He created that situation. Now, Hashem doesn't need our prayers. When it says Hakadosh Baruch Hu misavel l'tfilasim shol tzaddikim, that Hashem loves the prayers of tzaddikim, what it means is that Hashem loves to see the development of, of the, of the tzaddikah through prayer. She ascends to such tremendous levels through prayer that Hashem says, I want her to ascend to those levels, so I will take away something in her life which is tremendously meaningful that will, will demand intense prayer so that she will rise to the potential level that she has. And then I will give her children, because then she's going to be bringing a child into the world on a much, much higher level of connection to Hashem. So when we talk about Sphila changing, we are, not, uh, we are not questioning Hashem's judgment. But what we are doing is trying to develop a connection with Hashem, or trying to reevaluate our lives, or to introspect, or, or try to prove to ourselves what we will do with health. What am I going to do with health if Hashem will give it back to me? And I, if I go through that process, changes have to occur, certainly if I don't get instant results. So the notion that if I ask Hashem for something and I don't immediately get it, obviously Hashem wasn't listening, is not true. Hashem was listening. Right? Hashem was listening, and there is no prayer that is not productive, because every prayer is a connection to Hashem. Hashem might decide at what moment in time the connection is sufficient enough to grant the thing. It might be that even the, most, uh, the highest levels of connection still won't grant the thing because Hashem has a different cheshbam. But prayer is never a futile thing. The prayer is always a transformation of the person that's praying. But it's part of the when you're praying for somebody else to get well. They're, they're not able to grow because like, they're, they're not going to change because of what you're praying for. They're not going to decide I'll become more religious because he's praying for me. So where does that... All right, that's, again, two points, an excellent question. The answer to that question seems to be, right, the answer to that question seems to be that in, in the ways that Hashem works, if another person is an instrument to my growth, that itself 
that itself becomes a chut, that becomes a merit to that individual. In other words, if that particular individual can generate other people's davening, other people's searching Hashem, other people's making commitments to Hashem, in Hashem's way, in Hashem's way of judging, that means that this person was a vehicle for other people's growth. The fact that this individual who is sick has become a vehicle for other people's growth right, can in its own right then merit the change that one is requesting. It doesn't necessarily merit it because Hashem can have other cheshbonus, but that, that is what, what is part of it. Right. We, we don't own, we, uh, we can sometimes help another individual by our growth because the other person was an inspiration and moved me in the direction of, of, of searching for Hashem closer. It's not a change of the behavior. The behavior that he decided is still ironclad. But it's not applicable because it's a different person. It has to be said in that dramatic way to, in order to see the difference. And that answer also be given to the reason why during the Moshe paper, by the Moravlin, when they. Go ahead. Shem said, I'm going to kill them all out and I'll make Moshe the new. I'll make Nation out of Moshe. And then Moshe's answer was that. Uh, what the Supreme Court said, he only didn't have the power to bring him into Canaan. Right. And then Hashem said, all right, now I'm only... Right. I'll kill them, but not in one time, but we'll do it slowly. That's the same kind of... Moshe was going to follow for them. And now, the behavior, now, it's changed. Now I won't kill them all out one shot, they'll die slowly. Is that the same? It's the same kind of a concept. The only thing that you have See, there there's uh, another very sophisticated concept where Hashem does something because of Kavot Shemayim, because of the overall global interest and goal, which I don't want to get into now. But there is one noteworthy part to, to the comparison to Moshe Rabbeinu, and that is it's true that every time that the people were in a crisis and Moshe Dabins, Moshe changed. Moshe changed. Okay? And being that Moshe changed because of the crisis, that elevated the whole situation. That's true. And that's why when the people plummeted, God said to Moshe, Lech reit, go down from your greatness, ela from them. In other words, Moshe's greatness was very much linked to the condition of the people, even in the ups and downs of the people. It was very much linked to that. But by Moshe, there's another concept. By Moshe, there's the concept of his being the Rebbe, which meant that when Moshe davened Hashem for the forgiveness of the people, it didn't mean that because I become greater, therefore forgive them in that merit. But Moshe Rabbeinu was making a claim that he would take the responsibility due to his growth to be able to elevate the people. In other words, the notion that because one person is good, Hashem forgives everybody, uh, it's, it's not so easy. It doesn't go like that. When Moshe petitions Hashem, it means that Moshe is saying that I will have the connection and I will have to you and the dedication to the people to make the change 
that warrants the forgiveness as a future. Right? In other words, Moshe is petitioning Hashem to invest in futures. And he's taking a personal responsibility to guarantee that future. Right? So in terms of a Rebbe that davens for, for a student or for a disciple, there is yet that dimension as well. There is that aspect as well. I always understood uh, Mashiach time as, it's, it's a minor point that you mentioned, as God giving examples of whatever, and the people eliciting it, or these are such miraculous occurrences, these must be Mashiach time. Okay, but the way you explained it is man's elevation of change, change, man's, uh, whatever, choice or free will changing, and then bringing Mashiach time, this is Mashiach, these are Mashiach times, what indication do you have that man is getting better um, on, on a personal level? Okay, so there's, there's two answers to the question. The first answer to the question is that when Chazal talk about the different miracles in Mashiach times, or not necessarily the miracles, but very unusual circumstances, those are usually symptoms that indicate that the spiritual condition is of such a nature that it's warranting Mashiach signs. Some of the symptoms aren't even necessarily positive symptoms. Some of them are extremely negative symptoms. But it's saying that in such negativity, there is nowhere else to turn except to Mashiach coming. So they're usually indications and symptoms rather than indications of growth. That's number one. Number two, one of the major distinctions is is if we're bringing Mashiach or if Mashiach is coming because of the plan. In other words, really Mashiach can come tomorrow. Right? But if he comes tomorrow, he's coming because of our doing. If he comes by the deadline that leads up to the 6,000 years, he's coming by Hashem's doing. Now, when we talk about miracles that say, oh, Mashiach is coming, okay, those are usually, the Sarah call, they are usually the indication that God has gotten set up and is intervening because the deadline is coming close. Where we're bringing Mashiach, it's not the miracles that happen first, it's the changes that happen first, that then precipitate uh, a concert change in the world around us because we've changed. So the function of the changes is either a product of our change when we're bringing the Mashiach, or it can be Hashem's way of saying, darn it, you didn't choose to do it, now I've got to bring it upon you. So you can be talking about two different kinds of the coming of Mashiach, and that can also be part of the distinction. Yeah. So. We're what? I know you don't like my answer, but the only answer to that is a Rebbe. That is the only answer. Uh, the, the question is how to choose such a Rebbe. 
but the only answer to that is to be able to be in counsel with somebody that can give you guidance. That's, the only, that's really the only answer. It's, it's the life and breath of any Jew that's growing to, to have a Rebbe, to have somebody that, one number one, is knowledgeable and experienced, number two, has a very keen understanding of where you're coming from and where you're going, number three, that you feel comfortable in being totally open with that person. So the three very crucial ingredients. If you don't have any one of those three, you don't have the, the right person yet. Those people are available. They are available. Right. One has to, to dive in and one has to search out that person. But that is definitely one of the things that follows the rule that I spoke about before, that what man wa uh, searches for, God stays in step. Bottom. That's also true. That's also true. That's also that 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 can be true. That can yeah. That can be true. Yeah. We we often we often people come go through our lives and they've made their mark and their place in the total scheme and the total practice of things. But they're not permanent fixtures. They're not. They're, they're, they're not permanently. But there is a concept of of one person that eventually one finds to be the 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 guide to the person. One of these days we're going to have a share on the whole concept of the the Rebbe Talmud, or you know, because it's a very very confusing issue. What are his powers and why, you know, and uh, it's a project. About this idea? No. Yeah, well... About this concept, no. There is a big machlaik, it's about Chiyasa Mason. And Moshe Chaim has a very interesting concept of Chiyasa Mason, where it's a body and soul concept. Nachmanides and others argue that it is not a body concept, it's strictly a soul concept, which can have its implications in terms of the idea of this new world. Okay? Because this new world, what, do you, what is this new world? That's Olam Haba. New world is Olam Haba, which I know is, is uh, I just threw you off the track, because you thought Olam Haba is where we all go when we leave here, if we're meritorious of it. That's not. Olam Abba is what we refer to as the new world, and loosely we refer to the place where the Neshama goes until that time. Okay, but the Olam Abba is really this new world. There will be a, obviously a great difference between Rav Moshe Chaim and the Ramban in terms of what this concept of this new world is. According to the Ramkal, it does have a physical vessel to it, so the world would have a physicality to it. According to the Ramban, on the other hand, it would be logical to assume that the whole concept is a spiritual concept that doesn't require, by definition, a world that has physicality to it. A world, a world of reality, but on a spiritual level, not on a physical level. So in that way, there is, to be honest, there is a difference of opinion. But in the Yisai, in the concept that Chisarin has to destroy itself, that there's a, a time orientation and an intervention on Hashem's part, and this whole um, balance that is guarded so carefully between the world and man, this is, this is, uh, this is across the board, this is...